Hi, this is Cody Dagalorians. This is Neil Dagalorians. And welcome to another episode of Bearded Fruit. Yeah. So we're recording this episode on May 31st. It is the eve of Pride Month. And um, I don't know if you haven't been like uh, paying attention to the news. If you didn't know, the world is uh, both literally and metaphorically on fire. There are fires everywhere, and it's not just us flamers. Yeah, we are still in the middle of a global pandemic. Over 100,000 Americans are dead from the coronavirus, and uh, communities all over the country and all over the world are kind of opening up now with varying degrees of cooperation from their citizens, Um, and we're seeing in some of the places where they have opened up earlier that uh, cases are rising again, and we could be looking at, over the summer, a new new, uh, rash of, of... coronavirus outbreaks yay i don't know if rash is the right word and and also right now protests are erupting all over the country in response to the murder of george floyd who died under the un, literally under the knee of a minneapolis police officer and uh, protests have erupted in over 30 cities across the country uh buildings have been burned police cars have been burned looting is happening uh, even in, in omaha there was a black protester at one of their protests uh there who was shot and killed by a white man who was taken into custody but was then released today uh on bail uh even though he murdered a guy and they have it on video and it's on video he murdered him and the guy's out uh but that's par for the course in america and uh, so it's like a perfect way to kick off pride right like what better way mm-hmm. for us to get pride going so we're not going to really spend this episode discussing the current protest outside of saying that we support them Uh, we're not going to talk about them in specific because we are two white guys and it's not really our place and it's not quite the work of this podcast necessarily to parse out what's going on in response to George Floyd's murder. But we can say we support the work of Black Lives Matter. We support the work of the protesters and we absolutely support the end of police brutality against people of color, specifically black Americans. And I don't think there, there are no disclaimers to say there. No. That's just how we feel. And that's sort of the extent of what we feel comfortable saying about the protests that are currently happening. Yeah? And I think it's fair for us to also say that we support other people monetarily supporting them through absolutely. donations. Uh, But we thought it would be useful uh, and in line with the work of Bearded Fruit to discuss pride and protest and how those things are linked and why we think it's important for queer people, regardless of race. And we're specifically talking about you white people and white gay folks out there. Us. 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 Yes. Us white folks out there to support these protests and other protests like it. So as a place to kind of start is sort of the, the, the nugget of the thing that I've been thinking about a lot, especially considering the, and seeing the way people have been responding to what's been going on around the country. So when queer people uh, responding to what's going on around the country is that you really can't have um, queer liberation and you can't celebrate Pride Month in June without uncivil protest. It's kind of built into the fabric of... Uh, and it's built into the DNA of the queer rights movement. It sounds like we're heading to a special segment of the podcast, which is Queer History with uh. Professor Daigle Orion's <laughs> Queer History. Let's learn something about the past. So, of course, pride exists because uh, it is a, a marker of the, the event that is, that is claimed to begin, have begun the 
gay rights movement. And that is the Stonewall Riots, which happened on June 28, 1969. Nice. Yes. So, um, in the early morning hours of June 28, 1969, police raided the Stonewall Inn, which had been turned into a gay bar back in 1966. It was the only bar for gay men that allowed dancing in all of New York City. So, on that night, there were like 200, 300 people who were there at the Stonewall. And uh, the bar had this big room for dancing, and that's where all all the the dancing happened and in the uh, the back of the stone wall there was a smaller room and that was generally where uh like they referred to them as like the queens but it was like drag queens and trans women that's where they sort of hung out and uh and like potted the night away mm-hmm. as they did the throne room they should have called it the throne room they should have but they they did not so Missed opportunity at this time police raids were really common uh the police would raid places and arrest anyone in the place that didn't adhere to certain rules about dress so at the time um men could not be dressed as women being in drag was an arrestable offense and women had to be wearing at least three articles of feminine clothing uh, or you would be arrested and they would also arrest anyone who didn't have proper identification so if you like were not carrying around your id you could be arrested just for being in a place that was no quote-unquote notoriously gay and to make matters more complicated the mafia were of course involved in mm-hmm. a way for they were paid protection to keep these raids from happening mm-hmm. but naturally it didn't stop them yeah and even for the stonewall there were you know there were sort of really wealthy people who were being extorted because like the police found it useful to extort people who had a lot of money who were caught hanging out there to remain not arrested they would uh blackmail them and extort money from them it would end up being very lucrative for the cops wow police abusing power no way so on this particular night uh the drag queens and trans women who were being arrested when during this police raid that happened, uh, decided not to comply with police. Uh, and all of the bar patrons that weren't being arrested decided not to leave. They were asked to leave the, the Stonewall, but they didn't leave. They stayed around on the street. And this crowd that was outside, that was congregating outside, uh, attracted other queer folks from the neighborhood. This is sort of, it was on Christopher Street, and this was a, a sort of a very queer-friendly part of New York City at the time. And uh, so while the police were waiting for the patrol wagons to take away the alcohol, because they did that whenever they raided the places, and also to take away the people they were arresting, this group of queer people who were both in the bar and gathered from around the neighborhood started to gather around outside and um they there were so many of them that that by the time the wagons got there the police were outnumbered by the queer folks that were hanging out and around so when they finally arrived and they were the the wagons arrived the police were manhandling and trying to pull the drag queens and the trans women into the wagon that's when violence broke out um the crowd who was outside tried to overturn the police wagon that showed up, the police then barricaded themselves inside the stone wall because they were outnumbered. I think of like a couple hundred people they were outnumbered by on the streets. And uh, that's when the sort of infamous stone wall riot, the, the part we understand about the stone wall riot begins. That's when the bottles and bricks uh, and uh, they were setting garbage cans on fire in the neighborhood and uh, they broke the windows of the stone wall. Um, and it's, it's important to really kind of sit on that moment the breaking of the windows at the Stonewall Inn because that is destruction of the the property of the gays. Like it's not not to get too far ahead in the conversation, but um, it's this moment of this is a space that 
we have created that we are destroying in our rage. And part of that is because the police were inside. Like, how else are you going to get to them? But the other part of it is because property is less important than dignity. Property is less important than human life. And that's kind of the whole point of these disruptive protests is that property can be replaced, but human life and dignity cannot. And it's important also to note that the Stonewall riots were not a one night. It wasn't a one night only special event. The night the 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 crowds returned the next night and continued the 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 the, the, the protest and the riots on Christopher Street the following night as well. And um, on both of these nights the 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 sense of community that was built and the anger that had been built up and that was being expressed actually became the really the birth of uh, of a particular part of the the gay rights movement the one that has been the most effective i would probably say so this was the beginning of organizations like the gay liberation front and gay activist alliance and they were formed in the wake of these these riots that took place in june uh 1969 and that is the when the gay rights movement found renewed momentum and propelled forward into what we understand it to be today. Yay. Yeah. And just as a side note too, I didn't, I didn't originally include it in our notes, but um, it always frustrates me whenever the people talk about Stonewall as uh, a response to Judy Garland being dead, because that just feels like, like some faggoty fantasy, I guess. Uh, sure. She had died a little bit before, but it really undercuts. I think the, 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 honesty of the story which is really that stonewall was a response to police brutality it was a response to police continually treating queer people in specific drag queens and trans women uh, and other gender non-conforming people of the community as less than human and so it it's really about it's about police brutality it ain't so much about dorothy it's very, oh, Rosa Parks was just tired that day. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. not a trained activist who knew exactly what she was doing. Yeah. It's a lovely bit of revisionist queer history. Uh, but uh, but think about Dorothy. Remember, it was about the police. So I think you, so we can point to that as kind of a really important moment of unrest and disruption and protest and, and vandalism. Is that, that's breaking windows and burning garbage cans. That's what that's all about. Against the police. Against the police. Yeah. Uh, but it isn't the earliest instance of this kind of revolt. There's a, it's a less talked about one, but it's also incredibly important. Um, it's the, another moment of this unrest that happened a few years before that is also woven into the fabric of our queer rights movement. And it is the Compton cafeteria riots that took place three years before in 1966. And this is a part that I always get confused about because it's talking about Com uh, a diner in San Francisco called Compton's diner, not Compton, Los Angeles area. It's, Correct. It's in San Francisco. Yes, Compton's Diner was a ca Compton's cafeteria was uh, it was a chain of, of cafeterias in San Francisco. And this one in particular uh, was the location that was in the Tenderloin. And it was frequented mostly by trans folks in the in the evenings, particularly trans trans women after they'd kind of spend evenings hustling because that's what you had to do to be uh, to kind of make it as a not everybody could have a part time job at a bookstore, right? Um, they weren't welcome in gay bars in order to have to congregate this way because of transphobia. Like trans women were not were were kind of were pushed out and were shunned in in gay bars. So they ended up in this part of San Francisco to congregate at Compton's cafeteria, and um, 
this is where they could like meet and socialize and have food and community. And Compton's uh, duh, was not really happy about it. They felt like the trans women who hung out there and who who gave them money, <laughs> literally like kept them in business, were uh, driving away more desirable patrons. And so they put in place all of these these uh, kind of shitty policies and and abuses to try to discourage them from being in the building so they would uh, there was a transgender service fee that you had to pay if you were a trans woman uh, you had to pay a service fee uh, they also um, would call the cops on them they would consistently harass them they would make up charges so that the police would arrest them and move them out of the thing and this happened on on the regular really and in 1966 i think it was in uh it was in july i think trans folks trans women there decided to pick at the cafeteria and it, and they were doing this in response to the unfair treatment and the constant abuse from the police so compton's called the police uh, on <laughs> on them to stop the picketing and when they got there one of the officers attempted to arrest one of the trans women who were picketing and she took her hot coffee and threw it in his face mm-hmm work and that is when the rioting broke out so uh the trans people who were picketing who were picketing comptons started to break dishes furniture was destroyed they destroyed the plate glass window of the cafeteria the police called reinforcements and the fighting continued more people came and they damaged a police car and there was a nearby newsstand that was burned down in response to this sort of police interaction at comptons i also want to just like really quickly point out like the beauty of that moment of I'm going to pick at this place, but also can I get a coffee? <laughs> like yeah. that's audacity. That is nerve, and I love that. That like hey. really, sh- it really shows how like like these these women, these trans women, were just like demanding their right to be. They were demanding mm-hmm. the right to be. So like even in the moment of protest, they're like, but I'd also still like a coffee, bitch. And it's either to, it's either to enjoy or. To throw in the face of a pig. Por que no los dos. <laughs> right. Like one or the two. The coffee can be useful in multiple ways. So uh, this rioting, uh, much like Stonewall, did not just happen one evening. Rioting continued the next night. And queer people all across the Tenderloin came and joined in on the fun. They were going to support the trans women. So it was it was gay men. It was lesbians. It was all these other people in the queer community. And... Um, on this, on the second night, they weren't allowing them even to be in the building. So the fighting continued, the the destruction of property continued so much so that <laughs> earlier in the day they had replaced they replaced the plate glass window that they broke the night before, and they rebroke that motherfucker. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> like that's just bad. That's that. There are choices. Like if your if your plate glass window is getting broken, maybe let it stay broken until things calm down until you figure your know. shit out. Yeah, but they went in and they rebroke it, uh, and and the Compton's cafeteria riot really was another one of those moments in the '60s that were we were coalescing around a new kind of way of moving forward uh, in in advocating for queer rights. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about one of the other ways later, but. Um, the Compton's Cafeteria Riot, Stonewall, these were moments when the the tone and tenor of the gay rights movement changes. And it moves into this place that says, like, trying to be nice just doesn't fucking work anymore. So we have to burn your newsstand down, break your fucking windows. We have to fight back. And strangely enough, slowly but surely, it worked. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. So these two big things aren't the only examples. There are there are tons of other examples of moments throughout the entire history of the gay rights movement where uh, civil unrest and disruption is important to our progress. You can look at the White Knight Riot in 1979. That was in San Francisco. And that was a 5,000-person protest. They blocked the streets and protested the lenient sentence that Dan White received for the murder of Harvey Milk. You can look at all of the ACT UP protests that happened throughout the 80s and 90s during the HIV AIDS epidemic and uh, where they were blocking traffic, they were disrupting things, they were they were uh, staging sit-ins or die-ins really. They were they were people masses of people were disrupting life for others in order to get people to do something about the the policies that were allowing queer people to to die on the daily because of AIDS and HIV. Um, there was even early as early as 1959, there was a riot called the Cooper Donuts Riot. And this was in a Los Angeles coffee shop where queer patrons fought back against police who were searching out trans women, drag queens, and gay men in a late night uh, coffee shop. Uh, they were trying to see, they were seeking them out so they would arrest them. They refused to go and they fought back against the police. And that was as early as 1959. So... <sighs> The point being, after this history lesson of these these events, is really that uh, you really can't take apart queer rights and queer liberation. You can't separate that from, I don't want to use the word violent, but disruptive protest. Well, and that's like, throwback to conversations we've had so many other times. This is why there are groups who are not only hesitant, but also very adamant about not including official sponsored police presence at pride festivities because you cannot through the the practices both historically and contemporarily of the police against queer bodies you can't separate those actions it doesn't matter how many queer police officers there are that that doesn't exclude the police from being oppressive against queer bodies even in a contemporary sense yeah, and I think it's for like it's it's to like continue that idea. It's important when you even think about like your queer identity to understand that your queerness, um, it, your queerness exists in the way that it does in opposition to the police. Um, that's that that's built into the fabric, right? Our identity isn't just like it's not just who we love. It's also like the whole history of our of our movement and the fact that we can be who we are has been in opposition to coppers and the man and and laws like and laws legislation yes. congress people it's just inherently <laughs> it's anti-american in a weird really weird way like being queer is kind of like being a communist <laughs> you've heard it here for first <laughs> you're I'm communists sorry. i'm sorry are you queer Ooh. Well, here is your gay card, and here is your copy of the Communist Manifesto. Hey, I mean, whatever works, right? Um, so with all that said, it has, of course, been really frustrating over the last couple of days to be on the internet, uh, as it is almost every other day. But it's been really, really frustrating now. I find that my, uh, like my, my Twitter life is a combination of kind of horror Twitter uh, theater Twitter and gay Twitter. And for the most part, I feel like gay Twitter has my little corner of gay Twitter has been okay, but there is still a significant amount of gay people who are saying things like, Oh, like, can't they just solve this peaceably? Why do there have to be riots? 
uh, why you know the the oh the looting I I just can't I can't handle the the looting. They and, they wouldn't be violent if it weren't for the police. Yeah. Like the police instigated from what I've seen, even in Omaha, especially in Omaha, the police instigated any form of a violent outbreak. It was it was them. Like it is anytime. It mm-hmm. it's it's the police show up and then suddenly it's a problem. It's not a problem until they show up. But I digress. Yeah, well no, but that, that's but valid though. That's that valid. And what you're seeing, what I'm seeing from a decent number of queer people, are sort of vocal expressions of uh, disapproval about these protests that are going, and I find that enormously hypocritical. I find, especially coming from majority, majority white gay guys, white gay guys, we are terrible as a, as a group, and it's generally white gay guys who are fairly affluent or who are at least who are living in fairly fairly lives that are fairly like homogenous with their other white gay friends are passing judgment on these and expressing disapproval on these protests as being unnecessary or or bad or immoral when your comfortable gay ass life exists because of protests like it so this is going to sound like an aside at first but i promise it it relates um so about 10 years ago larry kramer gave an address at yale um he was being awarded something or he was giving a, a speech of some sort and in that speech he bemoaned the idea that um gay studies was being given towards the uh, women's studies programs and that gay studies wasn't a part of history um, and that he felt that gay studies was focusing too much on theory and not enough on um, history. And there's a lot of nuance into whether or not he was right about that. But I think what it does touch upon is that there is a very huge discrepancy in terms of knowledge of queer history, of gay history. And, you know, whether or not it's because universities, history programs are not as keen on including gay history, and that's why they end up in women's and gender studies programs. Like, there's a reason why they end up there. Um, it's, it's just, I think there is very easily a noticeable discrepancy in the knowledge and scholarship of queer history. And I think that a lot of what we see in terms of responses from people, a lot of that is that lack of awareness that that absolute lack of awareness and to a certain extent at at some point it becomes a willful ignorance it becomes explicitly on on them to educate themselves and they choose not to so instead they go the all lives matter route um and they ignore the actuality of the situation the actuality of our history of our place in the world and how yes it is police opposition it is it always has been being against the police so maybe you should stop fetishizing cops i don't know wild thought there well and like i think also that 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 absence of history that absence of people like really focusing on history and knowing queer people knowing their history has also led to queer identity being more tied to popular culture than the actual 
things that have happened to queer people. Like queer community, instead of rallying around around history and like, I don't know, history and theory, that sounds pretentious, but instead of being wrapped around history and ideas, it's wrapped around popular culture. You know, I, I, I have never seen the gays come t- or even come together and also be more divisive than with the release of Chromatica. Like there's, there was more discourse around whether or not the new Lady Gaga album was good or not than there ever was around things like this yeah you get you get both sides you get the gays who are only interested in the pop culture and then you have the i'm not like other gays like it's just damaging from both sides and i and i feel like that that a lot of the the, i think there's a, a considerable pressure on young queer people to demonstrate their queerness or 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 occupy queerness through that pop culture lens instead of the like that that's how they're that's how they demonstrate that they're worth being in the group so there is never a place to really understand how we got to where we are or how we are who we are well like i've even seen like older gays be like oh you don't know about steel magnolias you don't know about this you don't know about that and it's like it's it's always it's it's not oh you don't know about act up you don't know about this you you only know you you only know so much it's it's always referencing pop culture gay gay pop culture history which has its value has its reason for existing and it's really great that judy garland is brought up um whenever we talk about it because she was a significant figure had an ally for the gays but at the same time maybe focus on something else maybe think about like history and what actually happened and and how we got to be where we are and where we should be going like there's there's so much more to it yeah because in the, in most cases popular culture aren't the popular culture has never been the thing that has shaped your rights as a queer person popular culture has never really shaped your access to things or your place in the world or how you are allowed to live the life you live what has is protest and activism like actual activism and the the history that we've experienced as a community that's what's actually changed that's what actually determines how you can live the way you live not not the lady gaga album that doesn't actually do it and like you can like it or not and i'm not saying you shouldn't care about it but we do lack a balance between caring about chromatica and caring about the compton's cafeteria and right. I mean, bless her heart, Lady Gaga does what she can too. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, like we stand, we stand. We do. I love the album. It's it's like a reluctant stand. Like you know, there are others I stand harder. But... Yes, Carly Rae Jepsen. Well, sure. Mm-hmm. Another white lady. Fine. <laughs> I, her songs are great. I was thinking Nadia Hussein, but you know, oh yes, we do stand. We her. stand, Nadia Hussein. We do. Yeah, I'm not saying that she's a queer icon. Uh, but... She is now. <laughs> She's my queer icon, She's Nadia. Icon. If you're listening, she's call absolutely me. an icon. Um, so, also on this, the in, in this discourse is the the idea, like, why can't they just? Why can't it just be peaceful? Why can't the protest just be peaceful? Respectability politics. Yes, and I just wanted to like another little history moment. We tried that too. Like, we totally tried that, too. I feel like respectability politics, if it was a queer organization, it would be the Mattachine Society. <laughs> so in the, in the 1950s the Mat- and in the 60s, the Mattachine Society tried these kind of peaceful, non- 
destruct, quote unquote, destructive protests. So there was something in uh, 1966 called the Julius Sip-In, where members of the Mattachine Society went to a bar, they requested service, knowing that the bar wouldn't serve them because they were homosexuals. They didn't destroy anything, they just left when they weren't served, and then they took it to court. So... That actually did a thing, eventually. It took a long court battle, but they took this through the courts, and eventually they got the state of New York to say that the liquor authority could not prevent gay people from congregating in bars. Hooray. <laughs> like, thanks. Yeah. They also did a thing called an, the annual reminder. Uh, each year, the Mattachine Society would gather and they'd do a picket outside of Philadelphia's Independence Hall, and they did this for five, I think, five years in a row. It was the annual reminder. And they had dress codes. They had dress codes, yes. Uh, the dress code was that men had to dress as men and women had to dress as women. Typically, too, like it was Sunday attire. Like mm-hmm. it wasn't just like t-shirt and, and slacks. No, it you was, had to look good. Yeah, you had to look like a respectable hetero. You had to say, no, we're just like you. And it was assimilationist at the like very peak. And I think the thing that we learned, especially from the sip-in with this is like, yes, it's been done. It's been tried, etc. But also, there's room for both. There's mm-hmm. actually... Because yes, the sip-in did do something. It may have taken a while, but it did do something. Also, you're talking about a group of people who had access to the courts, who had access to sue these people, who had the ability to defend themselves, had the ability to navigate the court system like there's a space for that there is a space for that there's always a space for queer lawmakers for for queer people and like even though it kind of contradicts what i said earlier there's also a space for queer police people because like outside of abolishing the entire institution of the police which i don't pragmatically think will happen anytime soon let alone ever like having those people in those spaces who can um, really exploit the internal affairs system and really like report bad cops and really do something about it. Like it is, it we need both people in the system and out of the system, but we probably need more people out of the system, honestly, who are, who are actually bringing awareness to these issues, who are um, expressing their anger. So yes, there is room for both. But I, the problem with the Mattachine Society, too, is that they constantly were critical of anything that wasn't what they were doing. They were constantly poo-pooing any sort of demonstration, any sort of expression of gender outside of their, their ideals. Um, they were just they were also very, very hesitant and did not support the Stonewall riots. They they were just like, well, we're not like those queers. And that's damaging. That's harmful. So if you are going to go the respectable route, you can do that without denigrating others. Yep. And and you can you can support in your own way without um, slippery sloping into respectability politics, because at the end of the day, it's just pitting yourself against your peers. Yeah, and like that's it's it's not just like it isn't just there's just room for all kinds of protest. I think all of forms of all of those forms of protest are necessary for a movement to work. Uh, you see that in all different kinds of of justice movements. It isn't just one kind. So like nobody's saying that rioting is the only way to achieve. I'm saying that. Pro- well, thank you. It's not the only way to achieve it. It is a it is one way and a necessary way. And that combined with all the other effort, that combined with an effort like the Mattachine Society's effort to 
to go through the court system. The individual kinds of activism that people can do in their own lives, you know, like there, there's the macro level stuff, but there's also the interpersonal level, the kind of stuff, the advocacy, advocacy that you can do on an individual basis with people in your life. That activism is equally as important as attending a protest. Like getting your brother to stop using slurs. That's helpful. Yes. Yes. All of that together is what makes a movement. And I find that too often we try to focus on one and say that this is the right answer. We try to like hold up the thing that feels most comfortable to us and say, well, this is the way we're supposed to do it. And the other ways are not are not successful or not right or not respectable. And yeah, that goes both ways. Like mm-hmm. there are people who are critical of those who don't attend protests or who don't donate to their to their funds and things like that. Like yes, we should support those, but also that's not the only way and there should be leniency and flexibility in terms of how people participate because we're also talking about movements that can be very dangerous for some people to um support, not not just not just physically but also financially also emotionally and psychologically um people who might donate to a campaign could get found out by their parents and kicked out like that's a very real thing that i can totally imagine seeing happening especially in my hometown it's a thing so like we need to be respectful and understanding and just like allow all these things and and encourage all these things to exist yeah, it uh, you know like the for the drinking game. I mentioned Dr. Kendi again, but it goes back to that notion of how Dr. Dr. Kendi sort of approaches racism. That's saying that you are either you are either perpetuating and allowing racist ideas or policies to continue, or you are actively engaging in anti-racist ideas and encouraging anti-racist policies. That you you're either one or the other. Um, there is no place where you can just step out and not participate. So whatever, as long as the thing you are doing supports the anti-idea, the anti-oppressive idea, then you are doing the work, not like, it's you not just like you can wipe your hands and just be done if you just share a Facebook post, but it is still in some small way, as long as you are doing the thing that works toward the anti-oppressive idea, you are in, you are engaged in doing the work. The only thing that's bad is trying to step outside of it and not exist in it at all. And there's also nuance to that too, because like, okay, great echo chamber. Yes. But yeah. Like civil rest and these kinds of disruptive protests are not just impactful in the particular moment. They also have longer term power. And uh, I'm trying to Neil to talk about what that long term theory yeah. with Neil DeGolorean. Yeah. So how do these how do these things have a longer term impact on uh, systems and people? Classes in session. Um, so take a sip, babes. Um, actually, just down your drink because it's going to be a moment. Um, so one of the things that when we were talking about this episode and what we wanted to talk about, Cody was bringing up some stuff and I was like, oh, that reminds me of this article by Jack Halberstam, Imagine Violence, Queer Violence. And I forwarded it to him and he was like, hey, this is cool, but how are we tying this into the episode? And I was like, I don't know. And then he told me to do it. So here I am. So with with uh, Imagine Violence and Queer Violence, essentially the, the gist of the article is, the, the gist of the essay is that if a subordinate group can show they are capable or plant the seed that they are capable of instilling and creating violence against a dominant group, 
that that can possibly create hesitance in the future. Um, and in my class, when I teach this, I actually reference the Me Too movement as this idea of um, creating a hesitance in male workers uh, in terms of sexually harassing female workers because they were put into this new culture, this new Me Too culture of, oh, I could actually lose my job. So if we relate that to, to this current cultural moment, when we see these disruptive protests, um, it is a subordinate group who are saying, hey, we are capable of being very angry and very loud, and we are capable of fighting back. Um, in the article itself, Halberstam actually references ACT UP, specifically their Bash Back slogan, as a form of queer violence. It is an imagined violence. It's not real. It doesn't actually physically hurt somebody, but it creates that moment of, if I bash this person, they may bash back because they are saying they will. Um, and it flips the script on what violence is. Um, Halberstam also talks a lot about um, the idea of violence existing outside of physical. It's also economic and um, psychological and emotional. Um, and when it comes to protests, Halberstam has a lot to say about um, respectability politics without using that word, but also um, how uh, it's it's important to use these other forms of protest and how they, they need to exist. So in referencing the um, L.A. riots that happened after um, Rodney King's beating, um, Halberstam talks about uh, a protest that they that they uh, witnessed in San Diego, and they say, um, "quote The group of protesters actually followed a route laid out for them by a police escort and arrived finally at a deserted police building. After some chanting and shouting, the qu crowd quietly dispersed. Local newspapers, indeed, were able to report that in the case of San Diego, the city remained relatively calm in the aftermath of the King verdict. The failure of non-resistant, uh, non-violent resistance to register anything but the most polite disapproval, I suggest, is the." effect of a glaring lack of imagination on the part of political organizers and an overemphasis on, quote, organization itself, which often produces determined effects to eradicate expressions of rage or anger from political protests. They're being very critical. He's being super critical of, of this idea of a state-sanctioned protest and that it doesn't actually do anything. So when we talk about these protests and how, why couldn't they have remained peaceful? Why couldn't they have... So when we talk about these protests and, and people are critical, why couldn't they remain peaceful? Why couldn't they have remained a certain way? It's because that doesn't do anything. It just allows the dominant group to still um, show their power over a subordinate group by saying, use this route and you will do this and you will meet at this place. You will have your moment and then you can go home. So those kinds of protests are just supporting the hegemonic order it's really just supporting the status quo by saying okay we will follow your rules and protest the way you want us to protest and then we will go home and all will be well and that that is actually not a protest it is just a form of the dominant group to feel like they're giving the subordinate group a voice when in reality they aren't these kinds of disruptive protests challenge that and subvert that and create the potential in the future for newer forms and and progressive forms and it also creates uh, I referenced earlier a hesitance it creates a a sense in the culture that oh this could happen if I kill this person as a police officer maybe I shouldn't do that maybe I shouldn't um exploit a system that has otherwise supported me in the past um, as a police officer because it might instill nationwide riots. It has yet to happen yet, but I think th these are the kinds of protests that lead to progress. We saw it with Stonewall. We are seeing it with the LA riots and, and the, the history of riots since, including now. Like We're seeing this 
uh, more and more things are happening. More awareness is happening. And so it just, we need to continue doing these kinds of things because it is creating a future where maybe the police won't be killing people anymore, won't be killing black people anymore. Maybe that will happen. Who knows? And like, that's like, I think that's a a great way to kind of hit toward the end of the episode. And uh, I'm dabbing. And, and, and just like, to bring it all together in a way with our kind of a, a, a sim, not a simple, but an idea to wrap it up. Like we're moving into the pride month for 2020 under these incredibly unusual circumstances. And it offers every queer person an opportunity to rethink and reconsider their relationship to pride. Because you're not going to get to do the things you did last year or you get to do every year that you've planned out for Pride. You're not going to parades. You're not going to parties. All those things that you normally do for Pride are not going to be happening this year. And to compound on that, you're in this place where there the nation itself is actually in this really kind of incredible crucible of change is what it feels like. So you go into Pride Month with this opportunity to to change the way you think about your relationship to pride and what that means and what is your personal relationship to the origins of our movement and the origins of our liberation. Cause those origins of liberation are in opposition to police brutality. <laughs> yeah. This, this month's pride should not be sponsored by no, anybody. No. Sponsor it yourself. This is an opportunity to also reflect on how we can participate in that kind of pride and how we can do that in our also in our external communities not just our queer ones how can you take the lessons that we've learned from our queer history and how can you take the lessons that we've learned from the origins of our movement and bring those not just into your queer community but how can you bring that into your education system in your community how can you bring that into the police force in your community how can you take those lessons and translate them into the work of your community as a whole so for next week, we are asking for um, six-page double-spaced essays, um, answering those questions, and um, we will be checking for plagiarism. So um, make sure that it is your own original work. Just remember, you as a queer person out in the world, you embody the spirit of every person that fought, that was injured, that died for the freedom that we all now have. You represent them. Except Milo Yiannopoulos. Well, he doesn't count. You do not represent that. But you represent and embody that spirit of the Stonewall riots, of of the Compton Cafeteria riots, of the White Knights riot. You embody that spirit, or you can. You can live your life and embody that spirit and, uh, and pay back the debt that you owe those people. And you should. And you got a whole month to fucking get started. It starts June 1. And Do it. The joke is that July is um, Gay Wrath Month, um, so get ready for that. Oh yes, yeah, I'm, I'm ready. Are you? <laughs> <laughs> That's a wraith, but <laughs> Gay Wraith Month. Here for it. I'd be here for it. Sequined too. robes. I'm thinking like uh, an aura of pink. I'm thinking um, instead of sealing souls, it's snatching wigs. Gay Wraith Month. Get coming, into it. coming in August. 
As always, we really appreciate your support of the podcast. You can find us at beardedfruit.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Google Play Music, or on iTunes. Any place where you find your podcast, you can find us there. If you want to catch us online, you can find the podcast at Bearded Fruit Pod on Twitter. You can also find Neil and I individually and say hi to us. Let us know what you think about the episodes. You can find uh, me at C. Orions on Twitter. And I'm Neil Makes Things Everywhere. There's a dot com, there's a Twitter, there's even a Tumblr. So if you really dig the podcast, please consider maybe giving us a review or giving us some stars, letting us know what you think of the podcast. Also share it with people that you think would enjoy what we're doing. And uh, we'll be back uh, next week with more Pride episodes. Especially share it with people you think will hate it. Yes. Share... Yeah. Share it with your Aunt Susan. Share this episode with every person who posts All Lives Matter on your Facebook. Every single Karen you know, especially my mom. And we will see you next week. Bye.